Father God, please be at work in us by your spirit this morning. Please give me the right words to say and show us what we need to see in scripture. Please teach our hearts your ways. Encourage us in our frailty and challenge us where we tend to go wrong. I ask, would anything I say that's not from you be quickly forgotten? And would you please fix our eyes instead on your glorious truth? Amen. So we're continuing our series in Mark today. It's a series called Following a King Who Serves. And we've been looking at Jesus as he's portrayed in Mark's gospel. Over the last few weeks, we've heard before, we've been following the, the run up to the celebration of Passover. So in chapter 11, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the final time. And he's hailed, as he does, by, by the crowd as a messianic king. And he goes to the temple and he drives out the market and the money changes there. It's like he's establishing a godly kingdom. But as he does it, it ruffles the nose of those in authority. So that at the end of chapter 11, as he comes back to the temple the next day, the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law come to him to question his authority. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking through chapter 12, looking at the dialogue that then happens between Jesus and the temple authorities. And in our passage today, that comes to its conclusion. Essentially, throughout chapter 12, Jesus has been bringing things to a head. He's been showing the stark disagreement and contrast between himself and the temple authorities. They, upset that he's been stepping on their toes, upset that the crowd has been following him, they've been attacking him with trap questions trying to trip him up or get him into trouble with the Roman occupying government in verses 13 to 17, or trying to push their own theological perspective in verses 18 to 27. And Jesus has been responding by speaking against them in fairly clear terms. He's been calling them out and carrying the crowd's approval along with him as he does it. He's bringing things to a head. In a sense, he's revealing them as his enemies. And so next week, at the beginning of chapter 13, we'll see that Jesus leaves their temple. He won't come back to it again. His next encounter with the chief priests will be at his trial, where they will condemn him and send him to be executed. And for his part, well, arguably in chapter 13, he may already have passed his own judgment on them. He says their temple will be torn down. He's bringing things to a head. So today we're going to look at the culminating questions in this dialogue between Jesus and the authorities. He's been asked what his source of authority is. He's been asked about tax. He's been asked about marriage and resurrection. And now in verse 28, he has asked the, the crown jewel of their questions. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? I should say that unlike the other questions, this one is not necessarily a trap. 
In Matthew's telling of this story, in Matthew 22, he describes it as part of the Pharisees testing Jesus. But Mark shows it in a more generous light, as perhaps being a genuine question asked in good faith. As Jesus has been showing that he's giving coherent, wise answers, this teacher of the law speaks up, wanting to hear a little more. I think it's it's worth us remembering that the Pharisees and teachers weren't cartoon bad guys, uniformly evil. They were passionate about scripture and not all of them were polarized against Jesus. We read in the Gospels of Pharisees who became disciples early on, Nicodemus in John 3 or Paul. Or in Acts, it's clear there's a sizable portion of the early church from the faction of the Pharisees. Some of them were receptive to Christ's teaching. So if, if we dismiss them all as one dimensional villains, then we might miss ways that our hearts parallel theirs. Or the ways that their passion for God's law puts us to shame. So look at this. This teacher of the law hears a good answer. He's genuinely interested. He asks a good question. It's probably not a new question. We know that Jesus discussed this summary of the law at least one other time in Luke chapter 10, when one of the teachers of the law says this summary. It's a big question to ask of the Old Testament. It was probably much debated. And Jesus was probably not the first to give this summary. The question is, what's the heart of the law? How can we be righteous? How can we be okay with God? What is it that matters most? Is the law fundamentally about the rituals, the ceremonial cleanness, the offerings, the role of the priests? Is it, is it fundamentally about who the Jewish people are, who you're descended from? Is it fundamentally about how well you follow rules? What is it that matters most if I'm going to be right with God? How can I be good? It's a big question. Jesus gives them two answers. The first is famous, and rightly so. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's lovely, that, isn't it? That way of summarising the law says that fundamentally it's relational. It's your heart attitude that matters. You can't fake that with things on the surface. According to this summary of the law, all the rest, all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, all the laws about ceremonial cleanness and the rules about what they should wear and how they should treat each other. All of those were only there to be a picture. To help the people to see this. What it means to be called into relationship with a holy God. 
what it means to be invited to live in loving relationship with him. Love the Lord your God. And they were always invited to be a holy people together, set apart on the earth. Together in their community, they were to show the world around them the goodness of their God's love. So love your neighbour as yourself. Fundamentally, Jesus says, Old Testament law is relational. As a quick aside, this is why Christians hold marriage in such high regard. It's because all the way through scripture, one of the strongest pictures of the relationship between God and his people has been the love and submission and dedication between bride and groom. It's relational. Jesus is saying, do you want to be righteous? Love the Lord more than rules and regulations. Delight in him. Do you want to fulfill the, the, the commandments at a fundamental level? Treat your neighbour well. Extend to them the blessings that you would hope to receive. Welcome them into community as God welcomes you. It's a lovely teaching. And the teacher of the law recognises it, doesn't he? He receives this teaching and approves. Verse 32. Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. We'll have time later to think about how we might apply that. Maybe time in home groups this week to mull over what that might look like for us. But I think it's Jesus' second answer that's really the focus of this passage. That's the one that puts the cat among the pigeons. Look at verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It takes a bit of a weird turn, doesn't it? Why does that shut them up? That is the last question they ask until his trial. I think Jesus highlights a problem here in the next few verses and shows them a solution that they may not be comfortable with. Throughout his dealings with them, he's been showing the teachers of the law that knowing the Old Testament rules even being able to identify the core of it, to, to summarise it in this pithy way, hasn't been enough. The law was good. It was perfect. It was beautiful. The Pharisees were right to love it and marvel at it. It's a picture of the goodness and holiness of, of a God who loves his people. But it was no use for bringing them to righteousness. Because none of us truly follow 
either the specific rules of the law or, or this summary in verse 29. Which of us can claim to have loved God with anywhere close to all of our heart? The ex-Pharisee Paul, who had been puffed up in his own righteousness before he met Christ, writes this in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. Therefore, Romans 3 verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. I think Jesus shows us how that has played out when he highlights the vain hypocrisy of the teachers of the law in verse 38. You see, despite their passion for scripture, despite the fact that they've heard this summary of the law before and probably agree with it, they've ended up as people who exalt themselves, setting themselves apart, reveling in their fancy robes and their positions of authority. But in verse 40, we see their prayers are just a facade. They are morally bankrupt devouring God's people, distant from God or righteousness, hopeless. This teacher of the law in verse 28 has asked the right question. But they need a better answer than the commandments. And Jesus says, here I am. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Just a few days after this, at, at the cross and resurrection, he opens up a new way to righteousness. A way to be good for those who come to him. And he does that by modelling the self-sacrificial love from verses 29 to 31. He fulfils that law himself as he gives all of himself on the cross. Here in our passage, he shows them that they should expect something like this. Look at this weird snippet, verses 35 to 37. He's asking them there if they think that Messiah is just going to be a continuation of the old pattern of their religion. He's showing them that the Messiah won't just be following David's pattern as a son follows his father. He's greater than David. David calls him Lord. He's showing them that something new has to happen. And he quotes Psalm 110, which is a promise of something new coming. A promise of God's kingdom being established under a king who is also a priest. It goes on in verse four of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I, I'm not going to explore exactly what that means right now. 
Uh, I'd encourage you to read the letter to the Hebrews, to chew on it. it. It's a glorious promise. But suffice to say, it, it was an Old Testament promise that the Messiah would be a new kind of chief priest. Not one whose job was based on using sacrifices to try and cover over the way that people couldn't follow the law. But a priest who through his own absolute righteousness would fulfill the law on his people's behalf. And so would be able to intercede between God and his people and welcome them into his kingdom. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I'm here. Can you see how Mark rubs it in? The Lord says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then look at verse 41. Jesus sits down in the temple like a priest king as the people bring their offerings. It's a foreshadowing of when this will be completely fulfilled, when everything will be put under his feet, when he returns in glory. And you see that in contrast to the authorities in verses 38 to 40, he doesn't exalt himself and devour the weak. Now, this is a king who is not far from his people. He's literally sat there with them in the temple courts and he lifts up and exalts this nameless widow who's given her all. This insignificant pauper, the lowest of the low. She's not insignificant in his eyes. In fact, he gives her a place of honour in scripture for all time. He's a king who is not far from his people. The teacher of the law asks, how can we be good? And Jesus says, as, as Dan read earlier, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Friends, it is only in that invitation, in that context of relationship with him, that we can begin to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Because he's done it first for us. And it's because we've been loved and welcomed by him that we can then begin to love our neighbours in the same way. He is a king who's not far from his people. One to whom we can come freely. One with whom we can live out this command to love. So how does that play out for us? Let me encourage you this week to ponder and pray and chew on it. Discuss it with your house group. Talk about it over lunch with your household. Here are a few thoughts that might be useful. The first is this. Jesus holds out an invitation to come and meet him. You're not far from the kingdom of God. 
I'm sure there are a few people joining us via Zoom or YouTube who are just testing the water. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer and you don't know what to make of us or of Christianity. Let me say that you are very welcome. And we really look forward to being able to meet you in person when this weird Zoom church is a thing of the past. You need to know that Christianity is not about being the right kind of people. Or being born into the right family or being good or saying and doing the right kind of things. That's what religion becomes when we get it wrong, like in verse 38. Christianity is first and foremost about coming to encounter Jesus, about relationship with him, about love, about being his followers. And it's remarkable because he is a king. He's a high priest. But he invites us to come and meet him. To follow and to know him. His Christianity is not a set of rules and ethics. It's a personal invitation. If you want to know more, then why not gently read through Mark's gospel for yourself? Focus on this character, Jesus. See how attractive he is. Why not chat to a church-going friend about him? Maybe someone who shared this link with you. Talk it over with them as you read. Or get in contact with us. We're starting a Christianity Explored course tomorrow if you'd like to get involved. Here's a second thought. The obvious question to ask ourselves. What does loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength look like right now? In lockdown, isolated from each other without that weekly bump at church, are, are your Christian habits and disciplines slipping, withering, because they're not on show as much? It's silly, isn't it? But I, I find that in lockdown, without as much external structure, it's easy for me to stop carving out time in the day to read the Bible and to pray. It's easy for me to lose sight of Jesus and how lovely he is and just to bumble along. My mind taken up by doom scrolling on Twitter rather than fixing my eyes on him. Christianity is not about rules and requirements, but but friends, would it be healthy for you to deliberately establish disciplines for yourself? So that you're regularly reminding your heart and mind how good Jesus is and training yourself to love him. Because it's only in that context of knowing Jesus that we can follow this command in the passage to love God. And so the more we fix our eyes on him and read his words and pray to him, the easier it will be for us to follow. Ask yourself, how would your prayers look different if you remembered that at the heart of God's law is loving relationship? That Jesus is not far from us, he's approachable. He invites us to him and invites us to love him as he's loved us. I read this lovely quote from a pastor this week. He said this, prayer is not a formula, an incantation or a recipe. 
Prayer is a relationship. In a good family, children often talk to their father. How different will my prayers be when I remember that? How close God has made himself to me. How he's invited me to love him, not based on my goodness, but on his grace. I think if I remember my relationship to him, I might pray more with confidence and joy, not guilt and burden. Another obvious question to ask. What does loving your neighbour as yourself look like right now? Again, in lockdown, we don't have those easy interactions week by week with our brothers and sisters at church. We don't have those easy ways to serve each other. And you may have far fewer interactions with work colleagues or your physical neighbours. But Christianity has always been about calling a people together. So what does it look like in these times for you to be actively supporting and building up the church around you? Has that been a priority? I suppose you can ask yourself, what is it that would help me right now? Where am I struggling? Because that will probably show us how we can support others. Maybe that means getting stuck into the Zoom breakout rooms after church. Even if it's far from an ideal way to socialise it, it can still mean that we're lifted and encouraged and challenged by seeing each other, by hearing each other's joys and struggles. Probably it means getting stuck into your home group. What a good way to be able to regularly share and pray and study and encourage. I found our home group hugely encouraging over the last year. Maybe it means thinking about who around you, in or out of church, might be feeling isolated or vulnerable and then giving them a phone call or a text. Seeing if they need practical help, fixing a time where legal and appropriate to meet up and go for a walk. How can we be a people who love our neighbours as we love ourselves? Another question. Where do you need to be cautious? Where does my Pharisee heart tend to go off the rails? Where do I do religion more to be seen than out of love? It's always a worry for people involved in preaching or leading, but for all of us, there will be ways that we tend to elevate positions of authority or hard work or particular gifts as if they're the thing that matters. Either because we want other people to think highly of us or, or because we imagine that if I could only do that, then I'd be good enough. We need to remember that that just hasn't ever worked. All my vain efforts don't win me a seat at the table. No, Jesus, a king who's not far from his people, has opened up a way to be good simply by coming to him in humility and love. So let me end with an encouragement for you through this week. How beautiful. Are verses 43 and 44. 
all, all my halting attempts at righteousness, all my vain efforts amount to so little. But our king's not far from his people. I don't have to earn my way into his presence. He has done that for me. And in his generosity, he stoops down to accept my paltry offerings. The fractions of a penny that I can muster. More than that, he delights in humble hearts which submit to him and he lifts up and exalts the widows and the meek. Brothers and sisters, know this week that our king delights in you. However frail and hesitant you feel. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. That in your son, Jesus, all of the righteous requirements of the law have been met. So that burden isn't on our shoulders. Thank you that at the cross and resurrection, the penalty of our guilt has been paid. And you've opened up a way for us to come to you. Thank you that you welcome us as we come to your son, Jesus. That you have given us a way to learn to love you with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength as we follow him. Thank you that in Jesus we have a great high priest and king who yet stoops to accept even our petty offerings and lifts us up in his grace. Would you please inspire our hearts to marvel at this? And help us to rejoice with confidence in you. Amen.